Hey there, Film Buds. Welcome back to the Film Buds podcast. I'm your host, Paul. And I'm Lauren. Uh, and we're joined today by a, a first-time guest of the show. Um, I've known him uh, for for about, I guess, 10-ish years. Uh, uh, Zach Laws. He uh, is a former film journalist. He's a filmmaker. Uh, Zach, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Nice to see you again after uh, so long. And uh, yeah. nice to meet you, Lauren. <laughs> yes, nice to meet you as well. Thank you. Um, for a little background on Zach, um, all three of us went to the same high school. He graduated in 2008. Uh, we I'm graduated. Old man. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we graduated 2011. Uh, and then he went and, and got his degree at the University of North Carolina School of the Arts. Um, and that's where he and I actually spent most of our time together. I ended up doing a, a summer program. That's um, right. Yeah, that's how we uh, got to really know each other, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, I actually still have you. You gave out awards to all of us. Um, oh, yeah. I forgot about <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and I still have mine, I think, somewhere around here. Um, yeah. I think it's in relation to me being sarcastic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh <-huh>. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, Zach, Zach's a very knowledgeable guy, and um, he has quite a, quite a breadth of information, especially about Oscar winners. I know that well, uh, once upon a time, you could ask him a year and he could tell you the best picture winner. Can you still? Yeah, I can still do that. Yeah. Oh, so. wow. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Haven't Matt, lost that. Uh, yeah, sure. Matt, go ahead. Uh, 1954. Oh, 1954. That was the year that, uh, and I'm going by movie year, not the year of the ceremony. Okay. So okay. Um, that was the year that On the Waterfront won. And the other nominees were uh, The Kang Mutiny, The Country Girl. Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, and Three Coins in a Fountain. Wow. <laughs> um, yeah, that's my well, that's parlor great. trick. So. Well, uh, we, when we put together this episode, one of my first thoughts was like, you know, I, I wanted to get you on this year. Um, you were on, like, I made a list of guests that I wanted to, to get in the show this year, and you were on it. And when we decided to do an Oscar year, I was like, Zach's going to be perfect. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, so today, uh, last last week we did the '40s and the '50s. This week we're doing uh, the '60s and the '70s. Um, a little bit tighter gap than any of our other uh, year decades that we've done. Mm -hmm. It's only a three-year gap from '67 to '70, uh, with "In the Heat of the Night" and uh, Patton. Uh, very interesting films. Um, I think that they both kind of sum up some of the attitudes and uh, cultural sentiment uh, going on at the time. Uh, because the, the 60s and the 70s saw definitely a real transitionary period in, in terms of filmmaking um, that was largely reactionary to the cultural shifts that were happening um, at the time. And so throughout the, the 60s, you know, you had women's liberation or, you know, second wave feminism. You had uh, the civil rights movement. You had the beginning of the anti-war movement in the late 60s. And uh, you saw a lot of that start to get represented in um, 
in the films of that time. Uh, and so it, it seemed like a good way to sort of, you know, touch on some of those, those touchstones. And also since it's February and Black History Month, uh, In the Heat of the Night also seemed like a great pick. Um, Zach, do you have any, any background that you would like to share on, on the time period or, or the Academy at that time? Yeah, I mean, I think that what's interesting about these two movies being paired up together is that, um, you know, as you said, it was a transitionary period for Hollywood uh, from the old Hollywood studio system of the golden age, which had been beginning to crumble um, under the weight of many different factors, um, you know, productions kind of going over budget, not making their money back, um, audience tastes changing and, and looking for something a little bit more reflective of the times that they were in, um, just, you know, the, uh, the realities of uh, people getting older and dying, um, you know, and uh, what's fascinating is that there was still this struggle within the academy between um, these kinds of uh, newer visions uh, that were coming out from people, you know, like Arthur Penn with Bonnie and Clyde and, and Mike Nichols with The Graduate um, in 67, the year that In the Heat of the Night won, or with uh, Robert Altman's MASH, Bob Rafelson's Five Easy Pieces, the year that uh, Patton won. And also the resistance to change by many of the people who still very much were a part of the old Hollywood establishment. So you can see in those same years, movies like Guess Who's Coming to Dinner and Dr. Doolittle nominated in 67, uh, as well as things like uh, Airport or uh, Love Story, which I guess was sort of a new Hollywood thing, but very much an old Hollywood kind of uh, a love story, um, just featured younger people in it. Um, so you can see those kinds of, um, those kinds of fights um, playing out within the Academy Awards, which are always representative of what's going on in Hollywood at the time. And what's fascinating about these two movies that one is that um, they are both very much in the old Hollywood vein, but with new Hollywood attitudes in terms of how they deal with their subject matter. So in a, in a way you can look at them as being sort of like compromised choices, which is generally what the Academy goes for by and large. It's sort of like the movie that appeals to the most people at that specific time. Um, the quote unquote safe choice. Um, and so I think that that's what's really interesting is that you can kind of see um, on, a, on a micro level, uh, the struggles of old and new Hollywood playing out in both these Oscar years and then also the movies that ended up winning Best Picture. No, yeah, that's, that's wonderfully well put. Um, <laughs> uh, thank you. That was a, a great, little, great little breakdown. Um, if, if the Academy typically goes with a, with a safe choice, just out of curiosity, what do you think this year's Best Picture winner will be? I mean, if it's the safe choice, I would say it would be Belfast, but I think that it, you know, all signs are sort of pointing towards Power of the Dog winning, just because of how much support it. The important thing to remember about the Oscars these years is that they've gone back to uh, a preferential ballot when they expanded their Best Picture lineup. Back in the day of, of these films, throughout the entirety of their, um, you know, history of having five Best Picture nominees, they just did a straight number one vote, right? Prior to that, when they had more than 
five more than 10 at some years best picture nominees in the 30s throughout the early 40s they did the preferential ballot which basically means in order to win with number one votes you have to get 50 percent plus one of number one votes if no film gets that then it goes into a second round of voting where they start going uh it's a little convoluted to explain but i'll try the best i can whatever film got the least amount of number one votes is eliminated and then the number two film on that ballot gets a number one vote and so they keep doing that until one film gets enough number one votes to win so preferential balloting you can kind of see um films like uh green book for instance or um even i mean films as varied as green book and moonlight i think of one on preferential ballots Films that have won on straight number one votes, I think, are more like your parasites and um, you know uh, nomad lands, right? Sort of the odder best picture choices, you could say. Um, I think that like Power of the Dog probably has the most support throughout the Academy membership, just based on the number of nominations that it got, um, and that could very easily win on a straight number one ballot. But if I'm picking like what could win most likely on a preferential ballot, that would be Belfast. Hmm. Interesting. Very, very interesting. Um, no, that was all wonderful. Um, I guess, um, I guess we can go ahead and jump into our discussion. I mean, that was, that was very well put and I honestly am not sure who's going to win. I know that, um, a lot of people that I follow on Twitter are, are petrified of a don't look up win. Um. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, that could be one of those preferential ballot things. I mean, um, yeah. you know, it just, again, it depends on like what movie, you have to think about it this way, all right? If something on a preferential ballot's gonna win, it has to be a movie that isn't just a number one, it's a number two and a number three. Um, and something like Don't Look Up is incredibly divisive. So that could be a number one or a number 10, right? Depending yeah. on how these things are ranked. Um, so, I mean, I wouldn't be too worried about something like that. Or things like, you know, for instance, Drive My Car, which is a wonderful movie, but, um, you know, a lot of people probably aren't going to watch because of its runtime and, you know, it's in a foreign language. So they might say, ah, you know, I don't, uh, I'm just not ranking it on my ballot, which is a shame because, you know, your, your job as an Academy member is to watch movies, you know, like. Yeah. But anyway, I, I think that, you know, you, you, you want to find that movie that has like the, the broadest kind of support, you know, that kind of like audience favorite type of thing, which Belfast has won lots of audience prizes throughout festivals, which kind of, it, it gives it, uh, it, it's more of a formidable challenger to Power of the Dog than I think people might be giving it credit for. Interesting. Um, I haven't gotten to to see Belfast yet. Um, there are still a few of the best picture noms that I need to try and see. Um, uh, I'm not sure if I'll tune into the to the telecast, but I'm I'm always still. Even in the years that I don't tune into the telecast, it's always something that I still follow pretty thoroughly. So. Um, there are definitely a few that I still need to get caught up on. Uh, but I am all caught up on some old ones, and so. <laughs> Uh, without any further ado, we'll go ahead and jump into In the Heat of the Night, and we have a little clip for y'all, so give it a listen. On your feet, boy. 
I mean now. Got a name, boy? Virgil Tips. Virgil. Where you come from? There ain't no trains this time of morning. I could have had you shot. Skulls caved in. Could have been a hitchhiker. So that was In the Heat of the Night. It came out in 1967. It was directed by Norman Jewison, and it stars uh, Sidney Poitier, Rod Steiger, who was in uh, one of the movies last week. He was in On the Waterfront. Uh, Warren Oates, Lee Grant, uh, Larry Gates, James Patterson, and uh, I had to throw him out, even though he's a minor character also, the one, the only Herschel, Scott Wilson. Uh, <laughs> and so the premise is a black Philadelphia police detective is mistakenly suspected of a local murder while passing through a racially hostile Mississippi town. And after being cleared is reluctantly asked by the police chief to investigate the case. Uh, Zach, since you're our guest, why don't you, uh, why don't you start us off? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I've seen this movie, uh, several times and I think that, um, you know, it, it might not have the same kind of electrical charge that it had when it first came out and was so revolutionary in the way that it presented, um, race relations in America at that time. Um, but I think that it still functions as a terrific mystery thriller and it is you know when, when you look at the ways that other films of that time dealt with race it does hold up a lot better i think in terms of how it goes about dealing with those issues and that's in large part um to uh, uh the way that it handles the sydney poitier character and um you know to put it in the context of the time at that moment poitier was um the only black actor, the only black male actor to have won an Academy Award. Um, Patty McDaniel had won for Gone with the Wind prior to that. Um, and he was uh, the most prominent black actor in Hollywood. He was largely playing roles that were uh, sort of uh, sexually neutered, um, kind of uh, docile, very much uh, a kind of like helpful, um, sweet-natured, non-threatening individual uh, that made him very palatable to white audiences at the time of the civil rights movement. Um, and in this movie, it uh, well, I was paying a lot of attention to his performance this go-round, and I think what this film does that films like say guess who's coming to dinner from the same year uh, failed to achieve is find what's going on underneath his um, constantly having to present himself a certain way in front of people. There's this simmering rage underneath a lot of his scenes that you can just see that's about to come out. And it comes out most famously in that scene where he slaps a white man, which, um, you know, even still, I think is really powerful to watch because it was the first time he had seen anything like that in a movie and he was not 
immediately reprimanded, killed, you know, what have you. Um, and I think that the way that the film deals with those aspects could go very wrong. And in a lot of ways, they, they go wrong today. We see in recent movies, um, the way that they deal with um, subjects of race. And a lot of the times it can be from the perspective of the white character. Um, you know, this movie could have very easily been about like how Rod Steiger's character learns not to be a racist, which, you know, that element is there, but it's not the, it's not the point of the movie. The point of the movie is um, Poitier asserting himself as Virgil Tibbs coming into this town, solving this crime in spite of all of these obstacles and, and preconceptions that are hurled at him constantly because of the color of his skin. No, absolutely. Um, so I, I hadn't seen this one. Had you seen this one, dear? Yeah. Okay. Um, I hadn't seen In the Heat of the Night. Lauren and I talked about it a little bit before and after. And, you know, it was one of those movies that growing up as like a movie kid, if you watched any of the AFI specials or, or stuff like that, you know, great movie quotes, you know, the 101 best movies or what have you. It was one that that I grew up seeing a lot, you know. Um, the "They Call Me Mr. Tibbs" line was was a clip that was regularly shown, um, and so I knew a little bit about it. Um, and obviously, I knew some of of Sidney Poitier's work. Um, the most recently, we had seen him in uh, Blackboard Jungle uh, from the fifties, and. I think that this movie, to your point, does really a, a very deft job at handling um, the racism of the time, you know, and it's it's omnipresent, but it's not um, it's not sort of uh, cranked to eleven to try and hammer home the point, mm -hmm. you know. It's living in that sort of. He just sees a black guy at a train station and just picks him up. And it's very earnest and very straightforward. Um, and I think that if you have, you know, like a history and, and knowledge of, of the time, it does still have a lot of, a lot of that impact. Um, I think Rod Steiger does a great job having seen him, you know, from a film 13 years before where he was kind of like a minor character um, seeing his performance here, I thought that he did a tremendous job. Um, and I think you're right. I think that Sidney Poitier's character does have this, Mr. Tips has this underlying anger, you know, and you constantly see it, this kind of fighting back and this, this kind of tenseness, this clenching, um, that is so regularly painted on his face. You know, you can just see it so clearly. Um, and I was doing a little bit of research before uh, the episode, and he was insistent upon um, slapping Endicott back. He he got the script, and um, he was talking with uh, the director and the producer in his apartment, and he was like, "No, no part of me, you know, as." whether, you know, it's a policeman or not, no part of me, you know, thinks that I would just sit there and take it. And, and I'm, I'm insistent on it, not just being put into the script, but being put into the final film. Um, 
And I, I think that he was pretty spot on. Um, and I think that, you know, because he was speaking with authority on the subject, you know, I think that they were, they were willing and, and, and open to including his ideas on how to improve some of the racial dynamics of the movie. And I think that's one of the things that works best in it. Uh, Dear, what did you think? I, I loved this movie. I, uh, the performances are, are fantastic across the board. Everybody's very naturalized. It feels like, you know, it feels like a real place instead of a caricature of what, you know, this could look like in, in a dramatic version of the South. No, this, this feels like an, an everyday place. This, these feel like real people which is always very important. Um, and I, and I agree. I think that, um, I think that, <laughs> let me, let me get more stable for my thoughts. Um, I think that Sidney Poitier is just, he, he steals the, the entire movie for me. I think that, um, I think that this movie even resonates not only for for the time that it came out, but also for the times that we live in today. You know, with um, with a lot of still a lot of racial injustice happening and a lot of racism across the nation, and honestly across the world, it is still very very powerful movie and a very powerful message. And honestly, I I, I would I watch this movie again. I I loved the fact that he slapped him back without hesitation. Um, because, you know, how would, how would you feel about being slapped in the face by some man who thinks that he is better than you just because of the color of his skin? And the, the moment after when, when he starts to cry is, is perfect because, you know, he's never felt that feeling before of, of, of being, you know, somebody's lesser, you know, he's never been struck before probably in his entire life. And so, you know, getting dished back the the treatment that he was giving is just, is such a perfect moment. And like, I think that this journey of these people realizing that there's nothing wrong with, with Sidney Poitier, with Mr. with Mr. Tibbs, and, and they all kind of have this parallel of this internalized anger, whereas our white characters, our sheriff can, can wear his anger on his sleeve. Sidney has had to you know, dampen himself down and correct himself on a regular basis because of his place in society. And I think that that's a really interesting dynamic to watch these two men who are very similar, but on different sides of, of, the, of the argument, of the issue. Um, I really enjoyed this movie a lot. I thought that it was very, very powerful. It is very striking to see uh... A movie like this and compare it to some of the other movies that Poitier was starring in at the time um, mm -hmm. where you know things like A Patch of Blue for instance which I don't know if you guys have seen A Patch of Blue or not but it's it's basically he Poitier um, plays this man who begins a very chaste relationship with a young white woman who is blind so she can't see that he's black and the whole point of the movie is like oh you know we are all the same if only we can like not see each other right um, he is constantly having these kinds of um, racial bigotries hurled at him in a movie like that. And his response is always having to remain dignified and take the high road and things like that and never like, never fight back. And so that was his screen persona for a long time was always just like, you know, one of the good ones, right? As they would say at the time, mm -hmm. someone who can remain 
dignified and noble in the face of racial injustice. And what you see in this movie is the response to that that so many people wanted to have, which was to fight back, right? And it is hard to, you know, seeing that scene today, um, you know, it's hard to really put into words what kind of impact that had for movie audiences at that time. Because like you said, it was not in the original script because they never thought it would be um, possible to do. Um, this movie was actually, um, you know, to, to, to further contextualize the time it was made and they did not shoot it in the South, even though it takes mm -hmm. place in Mississippi. They shot it in Illinois because Portier said, if I go down below the Mason-Dixon line, there's a chance I could be killed, you know? Um, and actually there's a certain scene uh, when they're outside, you can like see the cold breath coming out of their mouths. It was like wintertime when they shot this movie. It's supposed to be set during the summer in Mississippi. Um, so, um, you know, some of the sweat was probably uh, chills from, uh, from how cold it was. Um, but yeah, I mean, this, this uh, was at a time when movies with Sidney Poitier were not played in the South because the theaters would not book them. Um, so, you know, this, I, I think that for some people to watch this movie today, that it's, it, it might be hard to understand the impact that it had when it came out, but, you know, this really did like help um, broaden the image that, and, and the kinds of roles that black actors could play in movies, which then paves the way for uh, black exploitation, films mm -hmm. like Sweet Sweet Back, um, or uh, Pam Greer movies, uh, Shaft is another one, you know. Um, so yeah, I mean, this movie really does, um, you know, pave the way for uh, the broadening of that image. Mm -hmm. Well, and, and speaking on that, I was watching a discussion with uh, Lee Carter, um, uh, Norman Jewison, and um, the producer, who I am totally blanking Walter on. Walter right Mersch? Yes. And um, Quincy Jones was brought in to do the, the music. And he was like, oh, you know, I could get Ray Charles to sing the lyrics for the main song. And they contacted Ray Charles and he was like, I wanna, I wanna see the movie. You know, I wanna know what the movie's like. Um, because he didn't want to lend his vocals to something that he thought was going to be, you know, just just another movie or, or something that was uh, not going to sort of represent Black people in a way that he found worthwhile. And the thing that ended up selling him was the, the slap. Mm. You know, he was sitting there and he was listening to it intently and he heard the one slap and then he heard the other. And he was like, did he hit him back? And he was like, "Yeah," and that was that was the thing that sold him on on agreeing to make the the movie and add his his vocals to it. Um, so I think, yeah, it's 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 a fascinating movie, and and you know, if that if it had come out or if they had tried to make it even just four years earlier, it probably wouldn't have happened. Um, yeah, and it would have. It would have looked a lot different. I think there's one one aspect of this movie that uh, really should um, be talked about is its cinematography by Haskell Wexler, mm -hmm. who's one of those people along with like Gordon Willis and Bill Mosh Zygmunt and um, 
Lazo Kovacs, those guys who like really helped shape the look of 70s cinema, this kind of gritty, more naturalistic style. The thing that Haskell Wexler really understood how to do better than any other cinematographer working at that time was light black skin. Mm-hmm. Because it, it requires a different kind of technique from what they had what they would do with white actors. And part of the reason why cinematographers of that of before did not understand that was because they weren't really lighting a lot of black faces and you know, certainly not in leading roles. Um, and so like that just how Portier is photographed in this movie makes a major difference in how um, how his character comes across. Yeah. No, and and um, you can you can always you know you can tell in certain situations, even in more modern movies, where someone you know is not really sure how to light people of color, um, and it is a very particular thing. You know, it's it's a whole subset. Um, I was watching a roundtable, and they were. Uh, it was a group of black actors, and it, it's not even just you know the cinematography itself. It's hair, it's makeup, it's all kinds of stuff. Oh yeah, knowledge base is completely minimized because of the just the abundance of white focused stories, mm-hmm. and you know just not a lot of black actors being able to be stars and and leads in movies. Mm-hmm. Um, and so yeah, you're absolutely right. This movie is also ground, it's a groundbreaking movie on several levels, you know, technically, narratively. um, It definitely, you know, is is a film that I think is rather deserving of of the best picture um, moniker. Mm. Um, What did, since it is a little bit of a mystery thriller, um, and it's it's worth talking about any aspect that we can, um, how effective did you find the, the mystery element of it? Well, I mean, what I always find interesting, um, and I don't know how deep I want to go into spoiling this uh, 50-year-old movie, <laughs> um, <laughs> is that, um, you know, it sets up that it's it's going to be this kind of grand conspiracy, almost. Um, but it turns out that it's a very simple uh, answer to this question. I mean, this movie is not like Chinatown, where, um, you know, the murder has larger implications for the city and also for, you know, the, uh, the lives of the people in it. Um, this is really, it, it's kind of one of those things where, um, you know, crime is just a random occurrence, you know? Yeah. Um, and I think that what I find really effective in the movie is watching Portier put these pieces together um, just by like little things that the other officers don't, catch and and part of it is because like they're not used to to dealing with things like this right um you know i think the movie does a really good job of um you know walking you through the paces of this mystery and you know keeping you guessing what it's going to be about until the end um and i appreciate the fact that it is just kind of like a small scale solution to this it's a very human solution to it um you know because oftentimes you can get kind of trapped up with you know convoluted kinds of uh conspiracies and things like that and so i mean i just i appreciate that aspect of it uh no absolutely the the whole time that we were watching it 
you know, it does kind of almost feel like it's driving toward to you, like you said, you know, that sort of grand conspiracy, like something like Chinatown. Um, but yeah, crime is is so often just opportunity and motive, you know, nothing really more than than those two things. And so the 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 reveal, you know, of it at the end and the simplicity of it is honestly kind of um also a rare thing i feel like in a lot of the of the movies of the genre especially when you get into like more modern mystery thrillers it feels like very often it's some sort of big conspiratorial thing mm-hmm. um and so yeah i think that the fact that it does just kind of it's a small town it's a small town crime you know sort of as simple as that yeah and they're so distracted by their own perceived notions for the the crime for for Tibbs for you know the the whole thing they're like oh it's just I'm gonna keep just trying to tie it in a nice pretty bow and this is obviously the answer because this is the evidence that was given to me the most recently so therefore here it is and you know constantly trying to to push away at this man even though he is smarter than than they are has more experience in this field you know, and is trying to help them in spite of themselves. I think that it's just a, just really, I, I loved the the ride the entire time of really trying to go down this rabbit hole, figuring out who was the actual killer and, and why, and the fact that it was just something so easy because the movie constantly is, yeah, going in this direction of it being something bigger or, you know, or just trying to, to brush it under the rug and, and make it make it easy so that that way we can go back on to to life as we know it mm-hmm. you know get rid of the riffraff yeah and i mean tibbs is not uh, above those kinds of preconceived notions either which i think is an interesting aspect right. of his character and another way in which this movie um changes portier's screen persona which is that you know in other films he always had to be exceptional you know, and in this film, it's like, yes, he is the smartest person in the room, but he's not also, he's not also above um, maybe trying to find the solution that fits his preconceived notions about mm-hmm. Endicott, for instance, right? Like a part of him going after Endicott is, well, his assumptions about what crime is like in the big city, for one, but also the fact that he would just like to really take down this guy who was just so outwardly racist to him you know, when he went to meet him. Yeah, and has like literal uh, cotton fields and skin and black people picking it. And it's just a, it's a very, very powerful image as you drive into this man's property. And it it feels like you've gone back like, you know, a hundred years, but Mm -hmm. here we are, you know, in the sixties with this man still treating black people like how they have been for so long. And it's just like, I, I mean, you know, speaking as a black person, I would have probably tried to take him down too because he just, you know, <laughs> yeah. he's just a horrible person. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, you know, you bring. Oh, go ahead. Oh no, I was just going to say that brings up another interesting point about the way that this movie deals with racism because you know it's not. Um, it deals with it both on a macro and a mi- and a micro level. You know, it's like you see the kind of outward racism of somebody like Endicott, where he's like you know, um, he's got black people picking cotton in the fields as if they're still in the days of slavery. But, you know, also just little touches of the way that Poitier is constantly being called boy in the film, even mm. though he's a, he's a fully grown adult, 
you know? And I think that like, um, the thing that this movie gets right is that, you know, racism is not just people in clan hoods um, or, you know, kind of like um, Foghorn Leghorn police officers. Um, it's a lot of just like little microaggressions that get put out sometimes even very innocently. You know, I think it's just like a part of the way that these people um, have been brought up to refer to black people. Right. And it's just like ingrained in their, uh, in their thinking from, from that's the way it's always been, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. The, the, just the, even in a small town, the systemic nature of it, you know, there's the black side of town, there's the white side of town, and that's just how it is, you know? Certain people have jobs, certain people have other types of jobs, and, and that's just how it is. No, yeah. And honestly, like, unfortunately, we haven't really gone too far away from that mindset. It's, it's, it's easier to, to stop it at the beginning, but the thing is, we never did that. We've been doing all of these little, little adjustments, and that's why we've allowed it to just continue. And so I think that's also why this movie was so was so profound, especially for myself, you know, even in this times that we're living in now, it's just because of the fact that like, even, you know, in the 60s, we really haven't, haven't gone too, too far away from it. And it's just like a fascinating revelation. Yeah. Um, so Zach, if you had to give the, the movie a rating out of five, what would you give it? I'd go five out of five, honestly. I mean, I, you know, like I said, I think that it's easy to um, say because the movie doesn't have the same kind of, you know, revelatory power that it had just because we've seen so many films since then that have dealt with race. Um, but I think that the movie still, I mean, you know, first off, it is a very effective just thriller on its own. Um, it's really tightly constructed, um, edited by the great Hal Ashby, um, who had become one of the most important directors of the 70s himself um, but there is also a real uh, profundity to the way that it deals with race um, that I think still is effective today um, because it's not about like you know it, 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 I, the way that it deals with the Rod Steiger character too I think is really important because you never see him have this grand realization of oh man I'm a bigot and um Poitier actually is a good guy and I should, um, you know, I should change my ways. There's just these little things that change with him from moment to moment. And that scene at the end where they shake hands, um, you know, they, they play it out in a wide shot as opposed to like doing close-ups on them or having music swell up. And I think that kind of subtlety is what makes this movie so effective is that it's not trying to hammer home the point of, well, if we all could just shake hands and, and um, you know, be, uh, be as one, the world would be a better place. It's like, no, it's, these are little changes that are happening. Um, and it's on a person by person basis. And you're not going to solve racism in one town just with, you know, one murder mystery. It takes a lot of these changes that are going to have to take place. So I think the movie is still very effective. And, and I would... Uh, give it a high rating. No, yeah, absolutely. Uh, dear, what about you? Oh, five out of five. I, you know, on every on every level, I think that it's you know the the script is great. I think that, that it's acted phenomenally. I think that it just it looks so good to watch it. I think just on on every level, this movie is just is 
is truly, you know, a, a work of art <laughs> in its own right. Um, and it's completely deserving of, of best, best Picture. I think that Sidney Poitier is a phenomenal actor. And I think that he just, he takes this, this character to beyond what was written on the page and, and really brings it to life. And I think that all of the characters are just real. And I think that that's, that's something so rare, especially in like movies that we, we see today. You know, I feel like everything is just kind of like a, this is the type. So therefore that's as far as we need to go. You know, everybody has their good things. Everybody has their flaws. No, absolutely. Um, I'll go five out of five as well. It's it's tightly it's tightly constructed. It's thematically rich. I think it has rewatchability. Um, it's a very uh, visually striking film. Um, and yeah, I, I I think that it's it's worthy of all the praise. And I definitely now understand you know very much why growing up I did constantly see it referenced and and brought up um and i i think that it's really effective um even today uh, as a last little little fun fact i i love a good fun fact uh lee grant who plays mrs colbert mm -hmm. uh the wife of the dead man had only started acting again about three or four years before this because uh, she had been a blacklisted actor going back to last week through HUAC. Oh, um, wow. Her husband had been named and she refused to give testimony. And then her name came up in the publication, The Red Channels, which I talked about last week as well. And uh, her refusal to testify and her appearance in The Red Channels led to her being blacklisted. And she hadn't really had a lot of work in quite some time um and they they came to her and you know she knew that they were friends and that they were kind of giving giving her a little bit of a bone because she was getting back into the world of acting um but she had actually been nominated for one of her first acting performances and then like a year or so later she was blacklisted and was out of the game for 12 years wow well honestly looking at this performance you would have never known that she was just like not working yeah. for, for over a decade. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she was, um, uh, she actually did uh, eventually win an Oscar um, a few years later for Shampoo that was directed by this film's editor, Hal Ashby. So, full circle. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, and I guess without further ado, we'll, uh, we'll now move into our 1970 Best Picture winner, Patton. And we've got a little clip, so take a listen. This is Patton, a salute to a rebel, a man whom the New York Times described in an editorial two days after his death as a legend, spectacular, swaggering, pistol-packing, deeply religious and violently profane, a strange combination of fire and ice. George C. Scott as General Patton. They followed my plan, I'd be there by now. I'd cut off the retreat of every damn German and on his island. I didn't pick you. Carl Malden as General Bradley. Ike picked you. One of the best field commanders I've got, but you don't know when to shut up, George. So that was Patton. Uh, it came out in 1970. Uh, it is directed by Franklin J. Schaffner. 
and it stars George C. Scott, Carl Malden, um, Carl Michael Vogler, um, Stephen Young, Michael Strong, um, and the premise is the World War II phase of the career of controversial American general George S. Patton. Um, for a little bit of context, for those who don't know, uh, and a little bit of just fun historical background, George Patton was a U.S. general in World War II. Um, he came from a family of Southern military men. His father had been in the military uh, and wanted to fight, but never got the chance to. His grandfather had been involved in the Civil War for the South. Um, and as part of you know the sort of downfall of the Confederacy, they ended up a little bit poor for a while, but um, got back on the come up. And uh, he was apparently dyslexic. And his father really wanted him, since he never got to see war, he wanted him to get into war. And uh, he studied very rigorously. He ended up going to uh, military college. He was quite the athlete, but really primarily in solo sports. He didn't really do team sports very well. And uh, he ended up- a general. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and he ended up competing in like the 1918 Olympic Games in the pentathlon, which included five events uh, of like swimming, long distance running, shooting, um, I think like wrestling. And I can't remember what the fifth event was. And he placed in fifth. Um, he wanted to fight in World War One. Finally got to the front lines, was there for three days, and then the war was over. Um, and this movie was actually sort of started, they tried to get this movie off the ground in 52 to 53. Um, because the head of the studio at the time and, and one of the producers had both uh, served in World War II and had interacted with Patton. And um, they wanted to do a whole big movie on his entire life. And legend has it that they called the family to ask for the, the life rights. And it just so happened that it was the day that Patton's wife uh, was being buried and had had her funeral. And apparently the family was so uh, disgusted by this that they dug their heels in and said, absolutely not. And oh. so it got shelved for a while. Yeah, shocker, right? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know that. That's really interesting. Yeah. Uh, and it got shelved for years, and then they finally got the rights to two books. Um, General Bradley's uh, The Life of a Soldier and uh, the Patton biography that was written. And then they put it together from, from there. Uh, and so that's a little bit of a fun background uh, for you. Uh, Zach, would you, would you like to start us off on this one as well? Yeah, I mean, you know, um, talking about how long it took for this movie to get to this to the screen, um, one of the people who was hired to write the script for this movie was Francis Ford Coppola. This is back before he was uh, the great director of Godfather and Apocalypse Now and The Conversation and all those movies. This is back when he was like struggling to get his uh, foot in the door. 
And um, he, uh, I think that a lot of credit for this film's success and its durability over the years has to go to him because in many ways, this is a very traditional kind of epic film that Hollywood had been making um, uh, for decades before, you know, this kind of like life of a great man in history uh, told on a giant canvas. Um, but the thing that Coppola talks about um, when he was writing this film was that, you know, he did not particularly care for Patton politically, but he found out some things in his research about him that made him a fascinating figure to him, like the thing about how he believed he uh, had been reincarnated from other great generals, or the fact that he uh, wrote poetry, um, or the fact that he just like so badly wanted to be leading an army because he felt that it was God's intention for him. And those are the things in this movie that make it more fascinating than a lot of other um, kinds of films like it that were being made at the time, is that there's this kind of psychological complexity to, um, you know, well, uh, there's all these like stories about Patton, about how he slapped a soldier, uh, you know, and uh, how eccentric he was, but, um, you know, trying to bury under, uh, burrow underneath of, okay, like what were the reasons behind uh, these actions that he took, right? Why did he want to go to battle so so badly? Why did he slap that soldier? I think it makes it a much more interesting film uh, than it could have been, while still at the same time being very traditional in a lot of ways. You know, I mean, the director of this movie, Franklin Schaffner, he was um, a TV veteran. He was kind of a journeyman director throughout the 60s and 70s. He made the original Planet of the Apes movie. Uh, he made Papillon a few years after this. Um, uh, really good at just kind of like studio entertainment um, that benefited from these kinds of new nuances and complexities that were being peppered in from old Hollywood. So in a lot of ways, this is a very traditional movie, but it's also uh, very much of a, a product of the 70s. No, absolutely. Um... His, uh, it's it's funny that you mentioned Planet of the Apes. Uh, that's actually the the movie that made them decide to hire him. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, uh, dear, what did what did you think of this? You had not seen Patton before. No, I I never even heard of of Patton before <laughs> before watching this movie. I'm not I'm a big uh, history history buff. I leave that to my father, who who obsesses over over the wars and could tell you all of the facts. Um, so I never heard of this man before. Um, and watching this movie, I found him fascinating, honestly. I think that the portrayal of him is 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 unlike anything else that I've really ever seen. Um, he is unlike any other person that, that could possibly have a movie made about them, honestly. Um, truly a, a unique individual and I, really enjoyed watching this journey of his story through the war but that opening scene is truly just a absolutely iconic I, I love the the whole visual of it you know the, the huge American flag behind him you know feeling like you are one of the enlisted and he is he's giving you this speech and you're gonna go off and you're gonna kill some Nazis and that's that's what's gonna happen 
and truly, truly a, a passionate individual. I, I wouldn't necessarily have wanted to work with him, but <laughs> I think that, um, honestly, to each their own. I also don't want to go to war. So, you know, we have to have people like him who, who desperately want to go to war. So it's a fight all these things that we need fought. Um, but no, I think that this movie was, was absolutely um, just epic. Um, I don't know what what we would have done if it was his entire life story. I think that that movie might have been like five, six hours long. We've already got almost three for just the war itself. Um, <laughs> but no, I just, uh, there's nobody like him. And I also just like the fact that this movie, unlike any other historical person movie, you know, especially of the times and early, they're usually very like heroic and, you know, unwilling to to look at somebody's negative parts in order to tell this story to make everybody happy whereas like i felt like this movie really had a nice balance of showing him as he sees himself versus how others see him no absolutely um so I, I watched like a, a documentary on on Patton um, while doing some work today, and I think one of the reasons that it also does work so well is that um, they're pulling directly from him. Mm -hmm. So much of what his character says, what George C. Scott says throughout the movie, uh, are direct quotes of his, um, you know, just peppered throughout, and having so much material to draw from i think that coppola was really able to you know get to the core of of who this guy was piece through this kind of weird portrait you know of of his poetry and his speeches um and and the you know fantastical stories around him and and patch together this very very complex portrait um I had seen this movie like once long ago. Uh, I had watched Dr. Strangelove and I had mentioned really enjoying it. And I think I had watched it with either my mom or my mom and my dad. But I was talking about it later and I was talking about how funny, you know, the George C. Scott character is in that movie. And they were like, well, if you like George C. Scott, you know, you should really watch Patton. And... <laughs> And so, like, honestly, like, 13, probably, I was when I first saw Patton. And I, I really liked it then, but, like, it was just one of those movies that I hadn't circled back around to. And coming back after so long and, and having some sort of mental picture in my head of, like, what this movie was, you know, based off of what I remembered of it, and then sitting down and having that opening, like, six-minute speech just completely blew me away um and i think the movie manages to you know it, it manages to not just be that six minutes mm -hmm. uh it manages really really complex emotional journeys for um a man that could easily be condensed down to a caricature of of what that six minutes was for the rest of the movie um 
but his character has peaks and, and valleys that make him very complex. And um, it, it's, it's especially fascinating because it was very much at like the, the peak of, of anti-war sentiment in Vietnam. And uh, the, I think that it, what's interesting is apparently upon release, people who were kind of pro-Vietnam War thought that it was a great war movie that sort of justified their cause. And people who were anti-Vietnam thought that it kind of justified their opinion on, on the negativity of war and some of the people that, are, that take part in war, that have this kind of, of lust for battle. Um, <laughs> and I think that it, it does really walk this very fine line that I don't think that there are a lot of biopics that dig as deep into a person to where they can walk such a fine line about what this person did or didn't stand for and what that impact meant. Um, on top of that, it does also have just some absolutely fantastical um, battle sequences as well. You know, on top of it being a biopic, it is also still a war movie. Um, and I would say that also the the war stuff that we saw was uh, right there on par with some of the war stuff that we saw in Wings. Mm. You know, since you keep talking about that opening and how great it is, uh, that was actually the reason why Coppola got fired off of uh, writing this film, was because mm. they said, this is too weird, we don't like this. Um, and so, I mean, it's a miracle that that stuff ended up surviving. Um, his, he was uh, eventually replaced, um, I don't know how many other people worked on the script, but the other credited writer um, who won the Oscar with him was a guy named uh, Edmund H. North, I believe that was his name. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know exactly what his contribution was, but um, you know, we can guess maybe some of the more traditional elements of this film. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that um, what I appreciate about this movie is that there is an attempt, much like what uh, David Lean does with Lawrence of Arabia, to kind of um, look beyond the myth of a person and understand what made them tick as a, per as a human. Um, I would say that, you know, this movie doesn't reach the heights of something like Lawrence of Arabia because it's dealing in a more kind of literal way, right? A more kind of traditionally biographical way. Um, whereas like Lawrence of Arabia is more about metaphor and, um, you know, understanding man's place within the vastness of the desert and things like that. Um, but this movie did, um, you know, set the, the template for what a lot of like really good biopics would be, which is to not necessarily focus on a person's entire life, but to focus on an aspect of their life that best encompasses who they were, right, in history. Um, and so by focusing this on his World War II days, you're able to get a sense of what made this guy tick, right? His need to, uh, to be a great man of history, right? His need to be in combat and to lead an army. And also uh, the ways in which his own disproportionate sense of self often stood in the way of him achieving those goals, right? No, absolutely. Uh, the, the movie definitely, to your point, does a good job of, of making him his own worst enemy. 
regularly, routinely. Um, and you know, there there are definitely a few liberties taken, but you you are right. It is a very literal, very direct um, telling of of his time in the war. Uh, one of the little side characters that I found the most interesting was the the German aide that uh, was doing all of the research on Patton. Uh, I found that character sort of very interesting, and on a certain level. Um, he doesn't function as an audience character, but he kind of has this this outsider perspective that that a lot of audience members, I think, especially now have, where you're trying to figure out who this guy is, what he stands for, um, who he was before this. And so I think that that character is a really, really interesting addition. You know, it could have just been, you know, Rommel and, and the other Nazis talking about what they were going to do. But by including this kind of research figure um, who goes in and explains some of the, the intricacies of Patton as a person that we were never going to learn, you know, on the Patton side of the story, I think does a really good job of, of deepening audience understanding of, of the man. When he stares at his, uh, at his headshot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, before burning it, yeah. Slowly yeah. into the fire. It's the perfect moment. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Longingly, it's like, oh, but maybe if I just keep this one, you know. Yeah. I'm going to commit this to memory. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, those scenes are interesting just because, uh, because, like, so often in war movies, the enemy is seen as this kind of, like, um, homogenous, you know, faceless kind of, evil right and you know uh by having so many scenes set within like the nazi headquarters the nazi army headquarters um you know it, it kind of like i don't want to say humanizes nazis necessarily but it it gives you a sense of like what Patton was up against right mm -hmm. you know um the the ways in which they were because like when this movie starts the american army is getting its ass kicked right and Patton's like being brought in to, you know, clean everything up, right? And, you know, um, I think understanding like what they were up against in terms of the, the Nazi army, uh, army's strategy and the amount of research that they were putting into their opponents and the amount of work that they were doing and planning these attacks, it rate, right? Um, so it's very hard to kind of like make an audience feel like, you know, are they going to make it out of this, right? But by having those scenes in the movie, it, it does a good job of contextualizing uh, the fight that America, the, the kind of, the strength of the opponent that they were up against. And that's another thing that kind of separates it from rah-rah World War II epics of that time, where very often it's about like, you know, American exceptionalism, and there's just no beating the American spirit, and, you know, we're going to kick their ass no matter what. It's like, no, the, the German army was formidable. And, you know, that's why we were, that's why World War II was as, um, you know, as bloody as it was. Yeah. Um, and it, it also creates a great mirror, you know, off of them doing all of this sort of reconnaissance and research on him 
and then you get that great moment where you see that he's reading Rommel's book on on tank strategy, you know, mm-hmm. and so it creates this great mirror dynamic of of him and his adversary, how they're both the same and different. Mm-hmm. There's also an interesting kind of thing of like um, where he's um, he's kind of ruefully looking at the German soldiers being killed, and it's like, God, oh, it's a shame, you know, what a good army they have, right? Like, there's this sort of like, you know, weird mutual admiration for he's like his um looking at the german army and it's like the rigor with which they control their troops you know like he he kind of like almost admires them right Mm -hmm. it's like a formidable adversary for him yeah yeah well i think that the same could be said about the german side of it as well when they're looking Mm -hmm. at Patton. you know that one scene about normandy where they're like oh you know they're we got to follow him over here. They're definitely not sending out their best general, you know, talking about him with such like praise, honestly, like, mm-hmm. oh, this is, this is a good opponent for this war that we're fighting. It's, yeah. just, it's very interesting. It was a little bit reminiscent going back to Wings of some of the uh, deference that the the two, you know, dogfight divisions had for each other, the Americans and, and the Germans, and how, you know, when the Germans think that, the the one guy or when the german pilot thinks that the one guy has been killed you know he risks flying low over the american base to drop a note yeah you know to inform them and that kind of thing or how they get into the dogfight and the gun jams and so for for you know one of the german pilots it's no longer good sport mm-hmm. and so they agree to kind of you know just sort of dissipate and and, and go their own way um, but I think that that's also sometimes, you know, in, in the context of war, you know, this kind of weird understanding of the, of the difficulty that, that foot soldiers face, you know, when, when across from each other. No, I found this movie very interesting as a, as a war movie in, in regards, honestly, to the, to the, the balance, I would say, of of the American side and the German side, because so often, you know, not not even in just in, in war movies, but also in like fictitious versions of like World War II events, we are always fighting the evil of the Nazis and they're like cartoonishly evil, you know, their, their portrayal in Indiana Jones is just hysterically like, you Mustache know. Mustache twirling bad guys. Yeah, yeah. you know, and so it's, <laughs> very interesting to 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 i guess yeah not to your point to say like humanize but like to understand you know that that these are people and they're not just like weird you know fictitious versions of villains in our minds these are people who get up every day and go to work and have jobs and this is their job yeah you know it's a little bit of kind of like the uh the ed kemper interviews in in mind hunter mm-hmm. you know ed kemper is still a monster no one can ever say Ed Kemper is not a monster. But <laughs> but if you can go in and you can explain some of some of the monster, you know, as a figure, and sort of demythify and demystify, you know, demystify the whole thing, um, you get a clearer picture of what it was mm-hmm. and who it was. Um, no, yeah, I I think that this is a a really great movie, and also. Um, it saved Coppola's bacon on uh, The Godfather. 
Yes. So, I mean, thank goodness for, for that. He won, you know, both of those Oscars. For mm-hmm. those, so. <laughs> uh, um, go ahead. I want to just point out, this is sort of like a, a historical thing about um, the context of which this movie came out. Um, you can sort of see the internal battle between old and new Hollywood playing out at the studio this movie was produced at, 20th Century Fox, because it was one of three war films that they were producing at the same time. The other one was Tora, 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 which was this kind of epic look at Pearl Harbor from both the American and the Japanese perspective. Um, it was filmed on this large scale. Um, it had two directors, well, three directors, excuse me. Um, Kurosawa, Akira Kurosawa was originally directing the Japanese segments. He was fired and replaced by two other filmmakers. Uh, Richard Fleischer handled the American segments. And, um, you know, it's, it's very much a, a kind of traditional war epic, right? Um, very kind of like hagiographic and um, patriotic um, and, you know, huge, right? Kind of old Hollywood movies that were starting to go out of fashion at that time. The third one was Robert Altman's MASH, which um, was uh, very much a new Hollywood kind of film, both in the ways that it was made with like all of these alienating devices of the muddy soundtrack, the zoom lenses, but also in the whole attitude of, um, you know, the kind of like rambunctious, anarchic, um, you know, there's bad language in the movie, there's nudity in the movie. And even though it's set during the Korean War, um, it's very much about Vietnam and um, the scenes within the medical tents are very bloody and gross, which is just like war actually is. And um, it reflected a lot of the sentiments that people were um, feeling at the time. And so again, it's like you have Patton, which kind of straddles the line between being a very traditional kind of epic war film and at the same time having this psychological complexity that was uh, becoming more and more prevalent with new Hollywood filmmakers. No, absolutely. Um, And you can even, I think, kind of see it in, you know, going back to the fact that there was a revision on the script. I think that you can kind of almost see it when you're looking at what I assume Coppola wrote, which is probably a lot of the exteriors where Patton waxes you know, poetically amongst this ruin, uh, you know, versus when I think it's it's more than likely our, our second writer who's doing this kind of by the book stuff and it's in the set and it's a, it's a very straightforward scene. And so it's sort of, I think, the clash of the ideologies, like you said, even playing out in the movie itself of what the new writer brought versus what Coppola brought to him. Yeah. Um, Okay. No, I think that's no, I think that's well said, and I think you know again, like um, this movie, I think um, does a really good job overall of um, of focusing on this man's internal struggle with himself, you know, and that I think helps it overcome some of the more like traditional Hollywood war epic type things that um, you know would kind of date it. Yeah. Whenever he's on screen, it's magnetic. Mm-hmm. It's absolutely magnetic. Um, if, you, if you had to rate it out of five, what would you give it? 
I've got to go about a four out of five on this one. I mean, it's a movie that I've, I've watched a lot, but it's not something that I've returned to many times. Um, but every time I return to it, like if I have to record a podcast episode on it, um, <laughs> I, am, um, I am impressed by a lot of it. You know, I think that there's um, uh, the way that Franklin Schaffner directs this movie is also uh, commendable in a lot of ways because, you know, there are those very traditional kind of scenes in rooms where they're talking over battle and, you know, it kind of feels like any other war movie. But he is like trying some new things, like with handheld cameras and, you know, the way that he shoots the opening scene of the movie or uh, the way that he looks at the ruins of war, which I think are very forward looking in terms of what we would see in even more realistic and even more metaphorical kind of war films that would um, come after it. So I think it's a really spectacular movie, um, even in spite of some of the ways that it might have aged. No, for sure. Dear, how about you? Hmm. Um, I think I'm going to go four and a half. Um, I really, I really enjoyed this movie. Uh, there were times, honestly, that I forgot that this movie was made in the 70s. Mm. It felt very, you know, very clean, very crisp. And then there were moments where I was like, oh, there it is, right <laughs> here. This, this whole scene. This feels very much like a like an episode of Star Trek or something, you know, them in their war room <laughs> and very clearly on the set, a lot of makeup and, you know, I was like, oh, these, these are rough moments right here. But <laughs> honestly, overall, I thought this movie was very interesting to watch, um, very informative, and I really enjoyed getting to, to see a different side of World War II than, than the the praised, I guess. The flag out- waving. Yeah, very yeah. outwardly patriotic versions of World War II. I really enjoyed just, just seeing a man as honestly as we could get him and and his effect on on everyone around him. Mm-hmm. Just, a, just a true character, honestly. Well, now I didn't realize I could do a half star, so I might bump it up a little bit just for that. <laughs> 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 Um, I don't want it to sound like I didn't like the movie as much as you guys did, you know. <laughs> so, well, um. it's funny. I was I was honestly going to go four. Um, you know, it, it definitely does have some of those those little dating markers and some of those slowdowns. Um, but honestly, I think a four to four and a half is wherever you would like to fall on it. I think it's honestly very fair. Um, it's impactful, and I think that it's impressive that it still manages to be impactful. Um, I think that our lead is just phenomenal. I know that his name is also George, but I can't think of his last name. At the George moment. C. Scott. Yes, I think that he's absolutely yeah. <laughs> <just> amazing. <laughs> Who, um, you know, just speaking of the Oscars, not only um, refused his nomination, but refused his win when he uh, he did not like the Oscars at all. He thought that it was just uh, a meat market, and uh, he thought that it was wrong to pit actors against other actors and um he was nominated three times throughout his career and refused every single nomination uh, four times excuse me uh, throughout his career and refused every single nomination and when he won for this prize he did not show up the film's producer accepted on his behalf and then gave the statuette back to the academy the next day per his wishes so <laughs> hmm. fascinating uh, i saw a little vintage interview segment uh with him and he, as preparation 
said that he read, if I'm not mistaken, 14 books. Wow. And and said that he watched several thousand feet of of footage regularly. Um, I mean, the work shows, honestly. And there were several people who were brought onto the film as consultants who had served uh, alongside Patton. Um, they brought in Bradley. He was still alive at the time. Uh, and one of Bradley's primary aides as well. And uh, they all said that when George C. Scott was walking around, it, it was Patton walking around. He had the the demeanor. He had the the character. You know, he he locked in on who he was, which is also interesting because much like Coppola, George C. Scott did not much care for the man either. You know, I, I was gonna uh, talk about that earlier, and the thought escaped me because you know conversation led led in other directions. But I think that it is it is a test as a as a writer, as a as an actor to really talk about something that you or or perform as something that you completely just don't don't agree with. Yeah. And honestly I think that that's how we got such an honest portrayal of who he was because we weren't looking at his life through the rose colored glasses of somebody else's like love for him. If anything you had to find your way into why you liked them. Exactly. And I think that that's a more interesting journey. Yeah, absolutely. And I yeah, I think that that's kind of a um that's a great gift of, of filmmaking, right? To kind of have you empathize and understand somebody who you don't think that you would normally like. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, because even if he's not somebody that like I agree with politically or or uh, agree with his uh, his methods, I'm fascinated by him, and I want to understand what it was that made him behave in that way and what drove him to do these kinds of things. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think that's like, you don't have to always like the people that um, you're seeing or making movies about, but it is important to understand them and, you know, to try and, and understand them. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. Um, because also it's all still a part of, of the human condition, you know, and of, of our own history. And you can find yourself mirrored, even if it's just a part of yourself, in someone that you don't like and it's it's always worth exploring you know all of those little pockets and figuring out who we are who you are um again like you said whether it's someone that you like or someone that you don't like i mean honestly i think that the best villains are ones that you you love to hate you know the ones that you understand completely where they're coming from but like you know they went that step too far yeah right (laughs) uh as a last little fun fact on the movie and then we'll we'll do our final few few topics that i wanted to to sort of talk about uh the movie was shot in spain uh they needed locations that could fill in for multiple places and so the the place that they ended up deciding was spain and then on top of that the spanish army still had a whole plethora of U.S. military gear that they had gotten uh, during the war or sometime shortly thereafter. And so like a lot of the, the tanks and the trucks and the, and the planes and stuff like that were stuff that the Spanish government had at the time and were willing to loan to the production. Uh, and actually the two German planes that you see prominently in the film were also in their possession. Either they had crashed or they had bought them or, or what have you. 
Um, but it was all like World War II equipment that the that the Spanish government had and and lent to the film. Well, isn't that convenient? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so the last few few bits that I wanted to to talk about. Um, the first thing was I had mentioned it very briefly, and I won't go too deep into the into the history of it. Um, was for your consideration campaigns and campaigning for Oscars mm. because there is a a political nature to this this whole thing, um, and there's a game played to it. Um, Zach, do you want to? You you were in the <laughs> thick of it for a little while. Would you like to? <laughs> Oh, sort of, I still am, I guess. I, you know, it's, yeah. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I think it's, uh, it's become more so um, in the last few decades, sort of the influence of, um, you know, Harvey Weinstein, unfortunately, um, kind of uh, set the tone for um, making it, making Oscar campaigning uh, almost, mostly, almost more important than the actual films itself, you know. And that is just like, um, back in the olden days, it was a lot of, the extent to which there was talk about the Oscars, it was like newspapers would put out their predictions and gossip rags, like Hollywood Reporter Variety would say, these are the movies that are sort of in the conversation, right? Um, but there wasn't really this kind of like um, barrage of FYC stuff all the time. Um, there were screenings and there were parties and sometimes uh, producers and studio heads would work certain branches of the Academy to get their movies nominations. And that's how you end up with films like Dr. Doolittle getting nominated for best picture. Um, even though everyone knew that that movie was not very good, <laughs> you know, um, they just, uh, they, they worked the uh, craft branches of the Academy uh, where a lot of the kind of old fashioned um, uh, old Hollywood figures were still very much prevalent. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a whole thing. Um, it's a little different now because of COVID. Um, but certainly, I, I mean, I remember last year when everything was shut down, the complaint that I heard from a lot of anonymous Oscar voters were, we hate this. We really want things to go back to normal, meaning we want to be back to uh, getting wined and dined. <laughs> at yeah. every event we can possibly go to <laughs> so <I'm> sure. <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh so for a, a little historical context um back in 1930 uh mary pickford this was the first time that that anyone had kind of campaigned in any kind of serious way uh invited over several people and essentially you know gave this very very lengthy discussion about why she should be nominated for best actress that year uh and it ended up working she did get nominated uh, and i believe that she won in 30. um but the actual first time that anyone really started a full-on um campaign you know there, there were other instances where people like put out an advertisement, Louis B. Mayer went and took out an advertisement for a film um, that at the top lot of the, of the advertisement apparently had a picture of Leo, the MGM lion. And it said, you know, Leo, you give so much, it's time to receive. Um, 
but then the the first time that anyone really ran like a, a particularly serious um, big campaign was in uh, nineteen forty five, um, where Joan Crawford hired a a press agent to go and come up with like an entire strategy. Uh, so campaigning has been a part of of it for for a long time, but like Zach said. It really got ramped up, especially under Harvey Weinstein. Uh, there's a, a piece that you can go and read. It's a really fascinating read. I think it would make for an incredible movie, honestly, um, where he waged a war of absolute attrition campaigning to get uh, Shakespeare in Love not just nominated, but to beat Saving Private Ryan at the Oscars. And he had uh, a whole bunch of old Hollywood guards who were retirees in Florida on the payroll to call up other people and old connections and things like that. And it's it's a really fascinating read if you haven't read it. Um, and oh. and he he gave them like a script and was like, tell them that the the beach scene is the best part, but that it's just a war movie after that. And like yeah. he <laughs> he went all out in trying to bring that movie down and he ended up winning. Well, uh, I mean, jokes on you, Harvey. Like, <laughs> I've never seen Shakespeare in love. I've never seen Saving Private Ryan. Well, I mean, it is a pretty good movie. You should check it out, I will say. You, shouldn't have, probably shouldn't have, um, uh, you know, I think that, uh, not, not to give him, not to give credit to this monster, but I think that the thing that he did understand that a lot of people now understand because of, of the the burgeoning independent film movement that was happening in the 80s. Um, like the Oscars were the best way to get a lot of these movies noticed by people, you know? And the reason why there is such an emphasis put on campaigning for Oscars in this day and age is because there is, uh, it, to win an Oscar and to get nominated for an Oscar can mean a financial boom. For your film that's why a lot of these movies will get released at the end of the year because if they're still in theaters when the oscar nominations come out and more importantly when the oscar wins happen people are more incentivized to go see them like that's how a movie like parasite ended up making as much money as it did at the box office was because it had best picture heat and it ended up winning best picture and so people were like i guess i gotta go see this yeah. so i mean that was something that he understood and that a lot of other people um took upon themselves to adopt as well. They had no choice because he was such a ruthless individual. Um, in more ways than one, we found out, um, you know, that uh, it, it was easy for your film to get lost in the sort of Miramax machine. Um, and a lot of the people who worked on the Shakespeare in Love campaign are still doing it to this day. You know, they're still like some of the top Oscar consultants um, yeah. who are working right now. For a reason, because they like know how to pull off those unlikely victories. Yeah, they know how to pull off an upset. Yeah. It's like politics, honestly. Yeah, it is exactly like politics, except for movies, you know. Yeah. Yep. Um, beyond that, there was the announcement this week, you know, keeping everything sort of Oscar themed. Uh, they're doing a three host structure this year. Uh, and they announced that the three hosts are Regina Hall. Wanda Sykes and Amy Schumer. Mm -hmm. um, apparently everyone is going to get an hour 
block kind of to be the host. I don't know if they'll all open the show together or if it's just going to be, you know, one of them opening the show and then like a handoff. Um, we'll see how it goes. Um, they've been hostless two years now. Yes, it was two years in a row. Um, yeah. Maybe even, yeah, two. It's hard to remember. It's hard to keep track of time these days. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know why they wait to the last minute to announce some of these things. You know, I feel like, um, um, I mean, we'll see how, um, how these three hosts do. I'm sure they'll do fine. I just, you know, I feel like if um, they're going to have somebody host it, then, you know, they should be like, hyping this up for a while, right? Yeah. You know, drive interest up for what people are going to see. I think they're kind of like hesitant to ask anybody, you know, just because of um, it's been a while since anybody's hosted. And, you know, they're at this kind of like, <laughs> you know, fear of Twitter, I suppose, even though like, uh, you know, people are going to, people who aren't on Twitter are going to watch the Oscars too. Like, I don't know. I just, I wish they would kind of, uh, make these announcements a little bit sooner and start preparing this stuff a little bit sooner so it's not so it can actually like feel like more of an event you know no, that's fair because we knew who was going to be the the halftime show act at the super bowl long long ago mm -hmm. um and so people who were interested in seeing you know snoop and dre and and 50 cent and eminem had the opportunity to find out and tune in um, I think the, the same, you know, with the, with the Tonys as, a, as another award show, I feel like we, we always have way more lead up of, of who the host is going to be, because also there's a lot of rehearsals and things that have to go into, you know, making this a whole event, where uh, I'm, I'm curious to see how these three are going to play off of each other. Yeah, um, it almost feels a little bit more like an SNL host announcement, where they're going to get like the, the <laughs> script a week before and... <laughs> Yep. Yeah. And we're going to improv. Well, you know, we'll see. I hope it's a good ceremony. Uh, certainly yeah. there's nowhere to go but up from um, last year's, which, I mean, I, I you know, uh, I understand there were some dire straits in that regard, so I don't want to give them uh, too much grief about putting on a, a show under those uh, circumstances. But, you know, nowhere to go but up, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and you mentioned Twitter. They also decided to throw Twitter a bone this year. There were two <laughs> announcements about the Oscars this week. Yeah. Uh, the first was the host. The second is they're doing two categories. Um, I'm not sure if they're going to get a statuette of any kind um, or just recognition. Yeah. Uh, but they're doing a Twitter poll for the sort of the people's movie you know best picture kind of thing and the best movie moment from the year so like a singular scene or something like that um <laughs> all i'm hearing is that they wanted to try and find a way to give no way home <laughs> some recognition yeah. at the show well i mean i i hope it works out for them because you know they Twitter is filled with spam bots who uh, can clog it up. Um, yeah. I don't know. I feel like that's really silly. Um, you know, this whole thing about like, I, I feel like there's this sort of internal struggle because they're trying to recapture some of the ratings that they had back in the 90s 
the Titanic one. Um, but, you know, the ways that people watch television and consume media have changed so drastically that that's never going to happen. And also Titanic was like a once in a lifetime phenomenon, you know, like there's no, there's no recapturing that. Um, And I think that, um, you know, the thing about the Oscars has always been, uh, not only are they a a reflection of uh, the, the time in which they are taking place, but there's always movies that are not going to get recognition for one reason or another, you know, and um, it, it, the movies that do get nominated, it has to do with many different factors, just like what people like at the time, which movie had the best campaign, you know, all these different kinds of things. And so I think to say that like the problem with the Oscars is that they're not listening to what audiences want enough. Uh, first of all, it's just not true because if you look at the kinds of movies that have been winning Oscars and nominated for Oscars, it's a lot of things like, you know, um, Joker or Black Panther or uh, Bohemian Rhapsody or A Star Is Born. You know, like, these are movies that made a ton of money, right? Um, Avatar. Like, there is no anti-audience, anti-box office bias at the Academy. It's just, you know, uh, they didn't nominate. I think that they didn't nominate Spider-Man for Best Picture because um, that movie doesn't mean anything to people who don't have an emotional connection to the other two films in that series. And so if Academy members haven't seen those other two films, they're going to go into this one and not get the, you know, the emotional stakes of, of what it's doing. Right. And so it's asking a lot of people to, to pick that as their favorite movie of the year, if they don't feel any kind of investment in it, you know, and it doesn't mean that like the movie's not good or it's not enjoyable. It just means that it didn't speak to the Academy at this time. And that's just the way it goes. I mean, there's, I I was upset that movies like Pig and Red Rocket uh, weren't nominated for any Oscars this year, but that's just the way it goes. So um, I, I, I say, let them do it and uh, we'll see (laughs) um, what, uh, what happens, you know? No, absolutely. Um, well, we always like to include a little a little segment where we talk about what we're watching. Uh, so, Zach, beyond the stuff that you watched for uh, for the show, what what have you been watching? Oh my god! I mean, I watch like ten movies a week, so it's very. <laughs> um, I don't know. I, I rewatched RoboCop last night, which is oh, okay. great. So it's one of my favorite. Uh, another movie that did not get nominated for Best Picture, even though it probably should have. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm just, uh, I've been watching a lot of Paul Verhoeven movies lately. I just, uh, I like to focus on directors that I really like and go through their filmographies, you know, something that I like to kind of see how people's uh, careers develop, you know, that's my thing. How about you guys? Um, well, we have watched... Um, oh, we so we went and we did the um, the the Beatles rooftop concert IMAX oh, presentation, nice. um, nice. which was really great. Um, you know, it's you don't get the depth of like the full Get Back documentary, but getting to see it on such a huge screen with that sound was an incredible experience to see for a band that you literally there's no way for you to see them perform anymore 
Um, and so that was that was pretty pretty spectacular, especially as you know a, a Beatles fan. But I think even even as like a a more sort of secondary Beatles enjoyer, um, I think that that, that yeah. <laughs> um i i think that it has a lot of a lot of value you know as just a a big event no honestly um especially compared to you know going to to concerts today you know it's it's such a hole to do where you're like these guys are like wearing some crappy shoes like whatever they wanted to put on for that day they were like two of them are two of them are in converse like actual converse and so it's really like interesting to see you know the Beatles go and do a concert event where they're just kind of slumming it almost, you know, just kind of like wearing whatever. To Ringo out. looks miserable as shit in the cold on the dog. <laughs> 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 like, like, what, January or something? January 30, I think, on, yeah. On a rooftop, yeah. Yeah. They are miserable. <laughs> yeah. But it's, yeah. Just, it's just a really just amazing experience, honestly, like to, to hear them as close to live as you possibly could. Yeah, I really like concert documentaries like that that are more about like the joy of performance than about acrobatics and pyrotechnics, oh, which yeah. a lot of concerts have become. So yeah, um, and then so this was kind of our Valentine's Day thing. So we did we did the the Beatles uh, rooftop concert too, mm-hmm. and then I saw that we had screening near us Raiders of the Lost Ark. And I was like, awesome. You know, I've never seen Raiders on the big screen. She's never seen Raiders on the big screen. Let's do Raiders. And um, what I did not realize was that we had gotten tickets for the 40X experience, (laughs) where it's like a theme park seat, but more uncomfortable. It's a little bit more like a torture device. (laughs) So you were like, at that. Sort of like the Disneyland ride of <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Where they've got the smoke machine. Thankfully, mm-hmm. I could turn off water being sprayed on me. There was a little yeah. button on my seat that allowed <laughs> that. Um, and they've got like the flashing lights, and it's it horrifying. <laughs> <laughs> One of the oldest rides in like Heroines or something, where you were like, I think I have a confession after this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, we went out to have dinner after the movie and we were sitting in like legitimate wooden seats and they were more comfortable uh, to sit in. <laughs> so, I've never seen a movie in that format, so you know, it doesn't sound very... Uh, I'm very really much. selling it for you. Yeah, <laughs> I know, yeah. Honestly, really, if you, if you want to be beat to death, then go and do it. Like, okay. <laughs> you know, I, I think that it's kind Yeah, of being fun. beat to death is like an experience I... yeah (laughs) um you know i i think that like it it was fun for like the kids you know in the theater but for for me at a certain point i was like halfway in i was like i just really want to watch raiders man (laughs) yeah yeah if there were like any non-motion seats that we could just like just scoot to and like watch the movie um but other than that uh you know we've been watching um we've watched like two episodes of reacher now which is pretty good um uh i i still really enjoy the movie um but i i think the show you know has its own sort of simple tv pulp enjoyment 
you know it's it's a it's a big tough you know big bad of of a hero who who beats ass at least once an episode um it makes it look like it's nothing yeah and, <laughs> and i think that it's it, i think that it has a lot of fun with that um we've been watching peacemaker um we haven't seen the new episode yet that just came out um and then i've been going through and and i've been working on an essay and potentially multiple essays on halloween and the halloween franchise and so i've been independently while she's been at work and stuff uh whenever i have the chance sitting down and watching one of the halloween films usually around like seven in the morning um i'm sitting down <laughs> and watching a halloween film and so yeah, I've made like it watching all... a horror movie in broad daylight you know that's yeah you know, <laughs> <I'm pretty. laughs> cup of coffee in hand. Uh-huh. Yeah. Great. Um, first one's still the best. So. Oh yeah. The first one is impeccable. Um, I just finished four a few days ago. Um, I, I think four is, is fine. It inherits so many problems from two. Um, but I think it does a better job at, at making just a, a more cohesive sort of experience than I think two does. Um, three is fantastic. I love season of the witch. Um, yeah, but I mean, that's pretty much all that, that we've been watching. Um, so kind of a, kind of a mixed bag. Uh, Zach, you are, you were at, uh, gold derby. You're now mm -hmm. currently working on getting, um, funding together for a movie. Mm -hmm. um you don't have to tell us about it if you don't want to that's entirely <laughs> up to you I, i'll save it for uh, if it ever happens so, okay when it, ha when it happens yeah yeah yes, yes when. No. <laughs> um but how can how can people if they would like to uh keep track of your journey you know what are what are the socials that they should follow you on that kind of thing oh you can find me on uh twitter instagram facebook and letterboxd at zach laws that's z-a-c-h-l-a-w-s um, that's where I talk about movies and stuff. So. <laughs> Perfect. Um, uh, are, is there any way that anyone can see any of your old work? Can they go to Gold Derby and find any of your old yeah, you writing? Go to, you can go to Gold Derby. Uh, my work's also been published on uh, Looper. I do uh, sort of movie articles uh, there too from time to time. Uh, yeah, and uh, you, know, you can find my films on Vimeo. Uh, oh, nice. Or at least like whatever films I've uploaded so far, because uh, I'm a, a, among other things a little, a little lazy when it comes to uh, uploading and updating. So <laughs> no, I totally get that. Yeah. Um, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. It was great to talk with you. Oh. Thanks for giving us so much of your time. No, thank yeah. you for having me. <laughs> yeah. Um, is there anything else that you would like to to tell our our listeners before we sign off? Oh, just, uh, I would say that um, an interesting, if you, if you want to know more about In the Heat of the Night in that Oscar year in particular, um, you should read Mark Harris's book, Pictures of a Revolution, which is where I got a lot of the information about that from. Um, it's a really great read. Um, it's, it's all about the five films that were nominated for Best Picture in 1967, which were Bonnie and Clyde, The Graduate, In the Heat of the Night, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, and Dr. Doolittle and what those five films say about the transition from old Hollywood to new. So I'd say anybody who's more interested in that, in the kind of context 
with which we were talking about uh, these films, they should check that book out. And also check out his other books, uh, Five Came Back, which is all about um, the filmmakers who went off to serve in World War II, and also his new Mike Nichols biography. So I'm, I'm doing a lot of work selling Mark Harris's uh, <laughs> um, books for you. Well, you know, uh, hopefully he'll appreciate it. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, that, that was a great, great little bit. I'll have to, to check that out for sure. Um, thanks as always, everyone, for listening. Um, you know, if you want, you can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, uh, Facebook. Uh, I also have a, a page or a, a letterboxed um, that you can go and, and see some of my reviews, especially I've been re-reviewing like all of the Halloween films. Uh, so, <laughs> uh, so yeah, you know, you can also email us at the film buds podcast at, at gmail.com. Uh, questions, comments, concerns, cries for help, what have you. Uh, you know, we're open for anything. And uh, if you would like, it would mean a lot. And I've, I think I mentioned it last week as well. Uh, we're trying to get Rotten Tomatoes certified. And uh, one of the requirements is, is 200 reviews on Apple Podcasts that are above a 4.0. Uh, so we're at 130 right now, and if you if you haven't already, uh, it would mean a, a lot to us if you could go and drop a drop a review. Um, because you know, some people are like, "Why does getting certified matter?" Essentially, it opens up certain doors, certain access points, mm-hmm. um, and it can help the show grow, and it can help get us earlier access to certain pieces of content and. Um, and then we won't have to, you know, bore you all to tears with, uh, with all of our history lesson stuff as we nerd out over movies made 50 years ago. Well, honestly, <laughs> it's a part of the charm. If you've sat here long enough at this point, you're used to the history. No, that's true. <laughs> uh, but that's all that we have for y'all. Thanks, as always, for listening. And we'll catch you guys next week. Bye.